0: Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: How do human beings try to make sense of events? Especially strange events like the episode we just heard read. I believe we make sense of stories in terms of other stories. We ask questions like, what story forms the background to the episode? Or, what narrative arc is the episode a scene out of? Or, what story resembles the episode? In other words, what's the story we can use as our lens for viewing the tragedy of Ananias and Sapphira? Many of us, uh, in hearing a Bible story, look immediately for a direct resemblance to something from our own story, our own experience. When we try this with Ananias and Sapphira, the results can perhaps be grimly humorous in a dark sort of way. Let me illustrate. A few years ago, my pastor was doing what you guys are doing here at Redemption, preaching through the book of Acts. We're around chapter four, and I get a phone call from him. Pastor Josue here. I'm going out of town in two weeks. Adrian, can you fill the pulpit for me? Sure. What's the text? Mm, Ananias and Sapphira. And I'm like, okay, so that's why you're heading out of town, uh, leaving me to deal with the death of those two individuals. But I agreed to preach on it anyway. Now, around that time, our church elders had just announced a new building fund campaign. We'd been renting office space for our Sunday services, but the elders had just inaugurated a fundraiser to raise money to purchase our own building. And every member was expected to contribute according to their means. After my sermon, the wealthiest lady in the congregation comes up and thanks me. Why? Well, she said, when she came into church that morning, saw the bulletin, saw the sermon text, Ananias and Sapphira, she thought to herself, well, I guess the elders really do mean business when it comes to the new building fundraiser. And that dear lady actually feared that I was going to use the text to threaten members with dire consequences if they failed to give generously to the building campaign. Spoiler alert for today, I will not be using the text in any such manner. But perhaps this uh, anecdote illustrates a danger in our common, though understandable practice, of seeking direct and immediate relevance of Bible stories for our own lives. I want to get there in the end, but perhaps we'll do better by starting out employing the Bible's own narratives as lenses for viewing Ananias and Sapphira. And then view our lives in the light of that bigger picture. Suppose we start in Genesis. Uh, Many have seen some kind of parallel between the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I suppose if you want to press it, you could perhaps imagine Sapphira in the role of Lady Macbeth from Shakespeare's Scottish play there are some connections between Adam and Eve, Ananias and Sapphira. Both episodes um, certainly highlight the danger of contempt for God with a single transgression leading immediately to dire consequences. But whereas the story of Adam and Eve led to a downward spiral for all of humanity, the story of Ananias and Sapphira appears to be a mere blip in the progress of the church's mission. So perhaps if we want to find a fuller biblical analogy, we might try the story of Achan from Joshua chapter 7. Story of Achan from Joshua chapter 7. Maybe some of you need a little bit of help recalling that one, and that's fine. Um, Here goes. Back in the Old Testament, you'll recall Moses led Israel out of Egypt at the Exodus. The Israelites spent the next 40 years in the desert until Joshua started to lead them into their inheritance, the promised land of Canaan, um, known as Palestine on the old maps of the British Empire where half the world was colored pink for some reason. And it began to shrink, but that's another story. Um, the Israelites, they begin to occupy the land of Canaan by means of military conquest. And that, of course, raises difficult ethical issues. I'm um, not going to touch today, but partly explains why I became a professor of the New Testament rather than of the Old. The Israelites enjoyed initial success. No doubt you'll recall the conquest of Jericho and the famous collapse of its walls. Then the Israelites are defeated in chapter 7. The reason? An individual named Achan had violated an ancient taboo. The taboo that the spoils of war belong to the God of Israel. But Achan kept back some of the gold and silver for himself. Violated taboo cost Achan his life and he was buried under a heap of memorial stones as an object lesson. So some similarities there with Achan, Ananias, and Sapphira, perhaps inviting us to explore other parallels on a macro scale between the story of Acts and the book of Joshua. For example, Acts is the sequel to Luke's gospel, and in Luke chapter 9, Jesus describes his journey to the cross The cross itself as an exodus. Second, between resurrection and ascension, Jesus, according to Acts chapter 1, spends 40 days with his disciples. Perhaps an echo of that 40-year journey of Israel to the promised land. Thirdly, like the story of Joshua, the story in acts unfolds with very precise geographical itinerary acts 1.8 tells us the plot line from jerusalem to judea to samaria to the ends of the earth but there the similarities between book of joshua story of acts cease because acts by contrast tells of a pacifist jihad a non-violent battle in which the only bloodshed is that of the Christian martyrs. But the parallels with the book of Joshua serve to remind us that the church is in a battle, a battle for human hearts, a battle over ultimate loyalties. What, or better, who deserves your complete loyalty? What story are you absolutely committed to? the risen and ascended Jesus, or some modern variant of allegiances available to the people of antiquity, such as loyalty to an emperor, or a pagan god, an idol, or a nationalist epic, Judaism's in the first century? You fill in the blank for nationalist epics for today. Or is your commitment to an intellectual philosophy some modern version of the Stoicism or Epicureanism encountered by Paul in Athens in Acts 17. To what or whom are you ultimately loyal? Moving on, we might also choose to view Ananias and Sapphira as negative foils of the story of Barnabas that we heard read from Acts chapter 4. If you read Even back further in Acts chapter 4, you see that the story of Barnabas follows a prayer meeting in which the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. What do folk today typically view as signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit? Is it ecstatic, speaking in tongues? Is it miraculous, cures from cancer? Well, according to Acts 4... The effect of the Spirit is the sharing of economic resources. That's what I was saying again. According to Acts 4, the effect of the Spirit is the sharing of economic resources. And that fits the wider plot line of Luke and Acts given by Jesus in Luke 4 when he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and announced, The Spirit is upon me. He sent me to announce good news to the poor. To set free the oppressed. To declare the arrival of the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. In Leviticus 25, this year was the shaping of culture by the Exodus narrative. In Jubilee, debts were cancelled. Slaves went free. The homeless received land. And that's the kind of culture that the Spirit shapes, in which the willing generosity of Barnabas testifies to the work of the Spirit. The grudging, self focused giving of Ananias symbolizes resistance to the Spirit. All these stories, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Joshua 7, Achan. Luke 4, the jubilee embodied in Barnabas, Acts 4. All these can help us frame the story of Ananias. But For the rest of my sermon, I want to use yet another story as our lens. And it's the story of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. Here's the reason. There are three verbal links with the Ananias episode. Both Acts chapter 2 and chapter 5 feature in combination references to the spirit, shared economic resources, and fear coming upon the community. Fear coming upon the community. Perhaps the story of Pentecost will turn out to be a most fruitful way to connect the puzzling story of Ananias to our own lives. So, I invite you with me to attempt to understand the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira through the lens of Pentecost, by doing a version of a CSI, a crime scene investigation. How exactly did Ananias and Sapphira die, or more specifically, what would a medical examiner write on their death certificates? That's a question I began to wrestle with when I was invited to preach on this passage for the first time many years ago. But I have to tell you, the more I ponder the text, the more I dwelt close to the exact wording of the text, the more elusive the answer became. And as a parenthesis, i I've now realized that my confusion resulted from me looking at the text through modern Western spectacles, with our rigid division between natural and supernatural. Natural, what science can explain. Supernatural, the weird and the funky. I was using those lenses. So my perplexity, I did what most preachers do. I turned to commentaries on the book of Acts. I consulted the words of the wise, learned scholars who've wrestled long and hard with this particular narrative. Here's what I found. These experts were unable to agree among themselves on what to write on the death certificate of Ananias and Sapphira. Some see it simply as a punitive miracle. God struck them down. Others see Peter inflicting a deadly curse like a scene from a Harry Potter movie. Crucio. I'm not going to say the other one, you know, just in case. But... If we read the story closely, very closely, those answers don't quite seem to fit. After all, Peter confronts Ananias, exposing his deceitful heart. A confrontation isn't a curse. Peter predicts the death of Sapphira, perhaps on the basis of what he'd witnessed with Ananias. And a prediction isn't exactly identical to a curse. Furthermore, Peter's initial question to Sapphira perhaps gives her the chance to repent, to come clean and tell the truth. In general, the phrasing of the episode in Acts 5 is rather different from the story in Acts chapter 13, where Paul does indeed pronounce a curse upon an evil magician. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira is not phrased like the death of King Herod Agrippa in Acts 12, which reads explicitly, the angel of the Lord struck him down. These other episodes show us that Acts can be very precise about the cause of death when it wants to. But such clear-cut statements are lacking in the account of Ananias and Sapphira. So, with my question unanswered, what what would the medical examiner put on their death certificate, I turned to other scholars of the book of Acts, Um, And these scholars argue that Ananias and Sapphira died from natural causes, the dreadful shock of their guilt being exposed. And to help us see how that was possible, these scholars highlight the differences between our culture and back then. They draw attention to the ancient social context, the ancient culture governed by dread of violating taboo. And in such a culture, a culture of honour and shame, the public exposure of violation of taboo, the public humiliation and shaming could easily bring on fatal heart seizure, especially if you had a pre-existing condition. Now, I'm not denying that that's a possibility. I think that's, that's perfectly true. Maybe That's what could have happened. But I confess that the scholars have once again left me with more questions than answers. When I look closely at the text... Number one, Luke the physician, assuming he is the author of Acts, is totally silent on the medical dimension of their deaths. And the story strongly implies a supernatural dimension since fear came upon everyone outside the church and within the church who heard the account. Furthermore, and I think this is really crucial, Peter's words give the story an epiphany quality or an apocalyptic quality. His words disclose the reality of the unseen world. They lift the veil to a world of Satan and the world of the Holy Spirit. To make analogy with the Chronicles of Narnia, it's as if Ananias has stepped through the wardrobe. At the feet of the apostles, he stands at the interface of material and spiritual of heaven and earth. The church, he realizes, too late, is holy ground, temple of the Holy Spirit. Ananias thought he was merely deceiving mortals, but Peter's words of apocalyptic epiphany reveal the true story. You haven't lied to men, but to God. How did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? If we read the episode as an apocalyptic epiphany, the strange story of Ananias and Sapphira actually becomes a microcosm for the entire book of Acts. Because when you read through Acts, almost every chapter reveals the thin and permeable boundary between heaven and earth. The natural or mundane activities of the church are woven into a supernatural dimension. Even the church business meeting in Acts chapter 15, with its rational theological deliberation, is described as a spirit-led process. The apostles summarise the course of their policy meeting with these words. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This makes me think my original question was misplaced about... um, were to write on the death certificate of Ananias and Sapphira, natural or supernatural. But the entire narrative of Acts challenges our modern idea of the iron ceiling between heaven and earth, our modern dichotomy of spiritual and material. The author of Acts simply refuses to answer my question in a manner that would confirm my assumptions. Instead, he seems to reply with a challenging question to us, to any of us who read his text with our modern Western spectacles of rigid division, natural, supernatural, material, spiritual. Peter revealed to Ananias the transcendent dimension of a mundane real estate transaction. The struggle between Satan and the spirit for control of Ananias' heart ananias was sadly blind to the results of pentecost blind to the permanent pentecostal reality as the chur- of the church as holy ground the permanent pentecostal reality of the church this meeting as the temple of the living god with the lens of pentecost i believe we have a way to connect the strange story of Ananias to our own lives. Because no matter how many medical questions go unanswered in the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira, the ethical dimension seems clear. Fear came upon everyone who heard the account because they realized that the church is holy ground, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the living God. That's the permanent Pentecostal reality on which the veil was lifted by this episode. Which brings me to ask myself first and and respectfully all of you, is that how we view church as holy ground, temple of the Holy Spirit, temple of the living God? Or are we perhaps tempted to say, well, stuff in Acts was back then, Days of the Apostles are over. Is the Holy Spirit an item in our creed, but virtually absent from the experience of our life? I have to say, I regret our tradition of calling Luke's second volume the Acts of the Apostles, because this label can tempt us to restrict its power to the past, to relegate it to the status of an historical museum. But the ultimate protagonist in Acts is not Peter or Paul, but the Holy Spirit who empowered them and who continues to empower the church today. So what have we called the book? Acts of the Holy Spirit, or better yet, Acts of the Resurrected, Ascended, and Glorified Jesus. For Jesus is the ultimate character in the story. According to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church as a royal action from his heavenly throne. The gift of the Spirit is a royal kingdom action from Jesus' heavenly throne. See what that means. The gift of the Spirit is a dimension of the kingship of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is how the kingdom of Jesus is exercised. So, as long as Jesus continues to reign, we live now in the age of the Spirit. The age of the Spirit did not cease with the death of the apostles. I happen to be ordained in a Presbyterian denomination, uh, Presbyterians, otherwise known as the frozen chosen. And whenever I give a version of this sermon... In my Presbyterian circles, I can almost feel the nervousness at this point. Thankfully, I feel it a lot less in this room. But from my Presbyterian friends, I feel, I can almost read the mind at this point. Maybe Dr. Smith is a closet Pentecostal. Now, I can't speak of your tradition, obviously. But I know that we Presbyterians tend to use the boogeyman of Pentecostalism as a way of keeping the story of Acts at arm's length from our personal narratives. Full disclosure, and for the record, I'm not, to the best of my understanding, a Pentecostal. But I do believe that we live in the era of the kingdom of Christ. Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated, and the presence of the Spirit is an essential dimension of that kingdom. So what does that reality mean? mean for us as citizens of the present kingdom? I think a New Testament scholar Max Turner, not as I understand it, a Pentecostal, has done a very good job of answering that question, of describing the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Turner writes these words. For Luke, the Spirit is God revealing himself, accosting us, surprising us leading us in unexpected directions, manifesting himself in unexpected ways and places, making Christ almost palpably present to us. Grasping us with profound and transformational understanding, bringing joy and praise to our lips and hearts, giving special wisdom, in testing circumstances, and more generally empowering us to share the good news of our God. Luke Acts writes, Turner, is a challenge to the regular temptation to domesticate the spirit and to reduce the gift to some merely theoretical imminence or presence, the activity of which is primarily an object of belief rather than of more immediate experience. Now, when I invite you, as I do, to live inside the story of Acts, to make the story of Acts the defining narrative of your own life, I'm not saying everything in that story continues unchanged. Obviously, the apostles themselves are no more. But what of that sense that the church is holy ground, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that this meeting is a temple of the living God? What of the holy fear, the reverence that accompanies that reality and that conviction? Following the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 summarizes the life of the early church. And pastors often use that summary as a model for leading their own congregation in its activities. The summary reads, those who received the word were baptized. They held on to the teaching of the apostles. They continued in fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. If we imagine our congregation by that checklist, it seems that many of us do rather well. Baptisms? Check. Apostolic doctrine? Check. Fellowship meetings, Lord's Supper, prayer the very next verse, and I encourage you to look it up in your own time, the very next verse reads, and fear came upon every soul. And fear came upon every soul. This Pentecostal fear was a palpable sense of the presence of God, an awareness that the church is sacred space. Without this gift from the Holy Spirit, All our prayers, our creeds, our communion, dare I say, our sermons, can degenerate into an empty routine. Let me end by briefly attempting to describe this proper fear that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks of a a, a reverence, a profound sense of the nearness of God. Biblical fear is the response of the angels who cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Such fear recognizes and paradoxically delights in the mysterious presence of God, the awesome presence of God. So this godly fear is the total opposite of that dread and revulsion we sometimes experience as children when we encounter disturbing stories or pictures of gruesome monsters, um, the kind of thing we try to drive out of our memories. Um, I've got two daughters, a 14-year-old and a 7-year-old uh, we recently adopted, and the 14-year-old loves Harry Potter. She has all the movies and the DVDs, and, and, and when, the, when our adopted daughter came to our house, the 7-year-old, she happened upon the DVD case of Deathly Hallows. And she made the mistake of looking on the back of the cover and seeing the picture of Voldemort. And she put the DVD case down and covered it up. I don't want to see that. That's not what the fear of the Lord is like. Uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The mysterious presence of God draws us near and fascinates us, even as we exclaim with Jacob in the book of Genesis, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. We're about to experience the Lord's table and this table is a gate of heaven, a place where the partition between heaven and earth becomes thin, a place where the natural, the mundane, the bread and the wine, is woven into the supernatural, the mysterious presence of Christ. Accordingly, a godly fear, a sense of that divine presence, has always been a requirement for participation at the table, which is why Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, urges us to examine ourselves before we eat and drink, lest we profane the sacred space. Paul urges us to have a holy fear as we approach the table. And this fear is, according to Acts chapter 2, a mark of the true church, a gracious gift from the Holy Spirit who is active, energetic in our midst. We invite you now to take two to three minutes for silent reflection on the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I invite you to ask the Holy Spirit now to reveal his special word to you personally.